Great, great. I'm good too, in case you were wondering. You probably weren't, but that's okay. If you would, take your Bible and find 1 Peter chapter 2 this evening. 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, you might be wondering what in the world I'm doing up here, because Brother Jim's right over here. Well, Brother Jim is with us, but his voice is not still. So... He is still on the mend trying to get over all the sickness that he had, so um, I'm with you again tonight. Um, so, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 4 when we get to that. Before we get to that, though, I would like to open this up with a word of prayer. So if you would, let's pray. Father, I thank you for tonight, God. I thank you for this time. Just pray that you would be with us this evening, God, as we see the truths in your word, God. And, and Father, I pray that you would... God, be with me as, as I bring this message, Father. Just pray that you would uh, bring to mind the things that I've studied. And, Father, that, that we all see the truths that we, we find here in your word in, in 1 Peter. God, we thank you for everything that you've given to us. And I thank you for this church. And, Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as most of you know, probably not by now, the last, oh, I don't know, six or eight months that I've come in and supplied in this, in this kind of capacity, whether it be a Sunday morning or Sunday night. We've been in the book of 1 Peter. We, we've been kind of going through a, a series or, or so. Uh, it's me coming in, I know it's kind of sporadic and, and not, not consistent, but coming in, we've been going through 1 Peter. And we've been going verse by verse. I don't know if, if y'all have seen that, but we've been hitting every single verse in 1 Peter. And we just, the last time, we, we broke into chapter 2, and, and now we're at uh, verse 4 tonight. And I was talking to my wife earlier, and she, she was reading through uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and she misunderstood me. She said, are you going through all of this tonight? I said, no, there, there is no way I could get through all of chapter 2 of 1 Peter and do it any kind of justice at all. And, and I think that's the best way for us to, to understand the letters, is to understand how, how full they are of doctrine, how full they are of information. I've used this description before, I've used it in the youth, I've used it in here, but the letters are weighty. There's substance to them. Now I know all of God's Word has substance, I'm not saying that only the letters do, but to find such a short uh, little book having so much in it, that, that's what we find with the letters. And so chapter 1, it, it took several weeks, uh, several services to get through that, and what we see is Peter is comforting a people who is struggling. They are suffering through persecutions, they are suffering through hardships, and they are suffering through the rejection of men, the rejection of people because of the gospel. And Peter is comforting them. And it's interesting, he's not comforting them in the way that maybe we would think that you would comfort someone going through a hard time, saying, I will pray for you, or I hope this is over for you. Instead, he comforts them by reminding them of the salvation they possess in Christ. And see, that is where our true comfort comes from as a child of God. It's not, not from earthly condolences, but it's from the eternal realities of the gospel. What has happened to us as children of God. He tells us, and, and as we have talked about and seen, we see so many truths there in chapter 1, and I think uh, one that is very prevalent is the assurance of our salvation. What we believe as, as Southern Baptists, and what I believe Scripture teaches, is that our salvation is eternal. There, there's not anyone in this world who can take it from me. That there's not anything that can happen to it. First uh, Peter chapter 1 says that I have an inheritance, you have an inheritance as a Christian that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He tells us and he comforts us because of our salvation and then he reminds us at the end of chapter 1 about the cost of our salvation. Not from our perspective like Christ teaches us in the Gospels, but from the perspective of what it cost Christ. 
He tells us in chapter 1, he says, it was not by perishable things that this salvation was bought, but it was bought with the precious blood of Christ. Your salvation was not bought with material possessions that fade away, but bought instead with the precious blood of Jesus. He sacrificed and He gave, gave Himself for us. And in chapter 1, we kind of see this shift. The focus shifts from our salvation to our service. We have a salvation, and because we have a salvation, that should mean service. That, that should mean serving as Christians and children of God. And we've seen in verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're just going to read 1 through 3 very quickly, just to kind of review and, and see where the context is. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he starts off this, this chapter, this shift, from focusing on salvation to service by saying, cast these things off. Literally lay them aside. This is the same kind of word we see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, lay aside these weights. Lay aside these things. And that's what Peter says. He lists these things. Lay aside malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. He says, lay these things aside and instead crave something in, in place of them. Contrastly, this is what we as Christians should crave. And that's what he says in verse 2. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. As Christians, we lay aside those things and we crave the Word of God. We crave the nourishment from God's Word. And that's what he says. He says, crave these things that you may grow up. He says, grow up into salvation, but he's literally saying that you might grow up. The, the idea for us, from a physical standpoint, we are born, we eat, and we grow, right? That's, that's the idea behind this having children and raising them, right? You give them something to eat, they're nourished by it, they grow up, they become monsters, then they become adults, and then they have their own monsters, right? It's, it's this cycle of life kind of a thing. It's beautiful, all right? But that's the idea. If we were to see a child who was not getting nourishment, they would not be growing properly. Their growth would be stunted. Or if we see a child who is, who is eating by all our, our accounts, but not growing, we'd say there's a problem there. And, and if we look at the Christian church, and not just Southside, but the Christian church as a whole, especially in America, would we say that the Christians who are in these churches, who have been there for years, would we say that they have matured? Would we say that they are mature adults in Christ, or would we say that their growth has been stunted? Well, if, if we would say that their growth has been stunted, then the reality is that we have, not, we have not taken in God's Word like we should. Peter says, as Christians, we lay aside these things and we crave God's Word. We crave these things that are good for us that we might grow up. And he tells us to do these things. And then verse 4, where we're going to be tonight, he tells us a little bit more about who Christ is. And he reaffirms some things in these few verses that we're going to see tonight. And so we start there in verse 4. As we read verse 4, we're going to read 4, uh, 4 through 8, and then we're going to go back and look at each verse and, and kind of break them down. So he says there in verse 4, says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. 
So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So we start there in verse 4, and he starts off with this phrase. So he connects it in verse 3. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, in verse 4 it says, as you come to him. Now the idea of coming to someone normally comes with the idea of also leaving them. Okay, let's think of going places. Most of us in here either do go to work, will tomorrow morning you will go to work. Do you go to work with the expectation to remain at work? No. What are we all doing as soon as we go to work? We are watching that clock. We are wanting the day to go as quickly as humanly possible so we can leave. There's not anyone in here who is going to go into work tomorrow, 8 a.m., 9 a.m., whenever you go, and say, all right, this is my home now. This is, this is where I'm staying. This is where I'm going to be for all, forever, right? That's not the reality of it. You, you go to work and you leave. But see, this word carries a different meaning. It's not the idea of going or coming to someone with the idea of you being able to leave. This carries the idea of also remaining. But when we come to Christ, when we come to salvation in Christ, we don't get the option, we don't have the option to leave. When someone truly, sincerely comes to Christ, it carries the idea of also remaining with Him. Salvation is not, does not have an expiration date. It does not have a half-life. It continues and we remain with Christ. To come to Christ is also to remain with Him. Jesus tells us this truth in John chapter 15, starting in verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. For the Christian to come to Christ, to be a part of Christ, means that you abide in him. That this truth that, excuse me, that Jesus is teaching, he says, I'm the vine. Just like a plant, I'm the vine, I'm the source. I'm where you get your nourishment and each one of you, you're a branch. If you want to accomplish things in life as my children, you will stay connected and you will remain or abide in me. For the Christian, when we come to Christ, we also abide in him. But if there is not a remaining, this is what he says in verse 6 of John 15. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. There is no separation in Scripture between coming to Christ and remaining with Christ. If you sincerely come to know Christ and believe in Christ, you will also remain with Him. That is the picture that salvation has. There's not going and then leaving and then going again. You come to know Christ, and because of what Christ has done in your life, and because of the salvation that you have in Christ, you remain with Him. You remain with Him in relationship and fellowship. It's not this back and forth miserable kind of a life that's based on what I do or what you do, but based on who Christ is and the salvation that He gives us. The salvation that you have in Christ is a salvation that remains. It abides. And what does Jesus say? If there is no remaining, if there's no abiding, the reality is that person never truly knew Christ to begin with. True salvation changes and true salvation remains. And Peter is reaffirming what he has taught us in chapter 1. Salvation is eternal. We can be assured of salvation because it remains. It does not leave. You are not saved one day and then lost the next. It is a salvation that remains. He reminds us of these truths and then he goes on in verse 4. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He calls Jesus a living 
stone. We know he's referring to Christ. He has been speaking of Christ at the end of chapter 1, and he calls him a living stone. He uses the word living to describe who Christ is, and then he uses the word stone to, to give us an illustration, give us a picture of who Christ is. We're going to talk first of all about that word living. Peter is reminding the people that he's writing to about Jesus' victory over death. We do not have a Savior who is dead in the grave, church. We have a Savior who is living. He is alive. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, he tells us, I have died, but I am alive now forevermore. There is no hold that death has on our Savior. He is living. He is alive. This is a good truth for us. This is, this is something for us to be encouraged by. Not only should we be encouraged and comforted by our salvation, but we should also be comforted and encouraged by knowing that our Savior is alive. Death no longer has a hold on Him. We were preaching on Wednesday night in the youth in Ephesians chapter 4. And we were preaching on this truth and this reality. The death, sin, he, he defeated them. There, there is no hold it has on him. He is conquered. He is victorious. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15, some of my favorite scripture, says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. I told the students Wednesday night, it wasn't this big epic battle that you would think of. It wasn't some medieval battle that you would think of. The way that Christ overcame, the way that Christ was victorious was by sacrificing, was through surrender. The surrender of Himself to the cross. And Christ overcame and He is alive. And Peter reminds us of that truth is a truth that we should remember. It's a truth that we should hold on to. It's a truth that should encourage and comfort us and motivate us to live in this Christian life. And then he goes on and he uses the word stone. Stone points us to what we see in the next few verses. So if you would, we were in verse 4, but we're going to skip verse 5 for just a moment. Look there in verse 6, and we're going to focus on the person of Christ for just a moment because that's, that's who Peter's talking about right now. Christ is this living stone. So, so what is Peter talking about? What does he mean? This isn't, this isn't a description we really use to think about Christ, but it's one that's used here. Well, verse 6, we see a little bit more of what Peter is speaking of. If you look there, it says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, this is a Scripture that is taken from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Peter says he is a living stone in verse 4, and then verse 6 he describes it a little bit further. He's not, not talking about just any random stone. He says Christ is the cornerstone. He's the cornerstone. That sounds important, but what is the cornerstone? When we think of the cornerstone, what do we think of? That this is a Bible term that maybe we have heard before, maybe we've thought about, maybe you know exactly what it means, but the cornerstone in ancient architecture, it was the corner of a building, and normally it was the thing that was laid first and foremost. When a building was beginning to be built, it was the very start. It was the corner of a building and considered the most important part to the structure. It not only could be the largest and strongest stone, but also it defined the rest of the building. So the idea behind the cornerstone is wherever you laid it, you had a picture in mind of what this building was going to look like. Wherever you laid this cornerstone, that's where it was going to be. It defined the rest of the building. It defined the rest of the space. Not only that, but it carries the idea of an archway. We see those ancient archways. 
And the idea when, when a mason was putting those together, they would stack the stones up and, and then there would be a piece at the top that would hold everything together. That was also referred to as, as the cornerstone. Without that piece, what would happen to the archway? It, it would collapse. It would fall. There would be no structure. There would be no stability. Peter's saying that Christ is our cornerstone. He is the cornerstone. And, and there's a couple different meanings to that that I want us to see. But first and foremost, let's talk about it in a broad sense. The, the reality is Christ is the cornerstone of the non-believer and also the believer. Without Christ, everything that we see, everything around us, it, it crumbles. It falls apart. Without Christ, we have nothing. If you're lost in here, you have no life if it's without Christ. You don't even realize it. You have nothing. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, paints this picture and tells us that it's through Christ everything's been created. Verse 17, it says, In Him all things hold together. Literally telling us, without Christ, everything that we see, everything in this world, the fact that this world continues to move, the, the fact that everything continues to keep going is because of Christ. Without Him, everything falls apart. He is the cornerstone. He is the most important piece to everything. Without Christ, everything crumbles and everything falls apart. And to us, that's a good thing. To the Christian, that's a good thing. That's what he says in verse 6, if you look there. He says, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We are not put to shame as Christians because he is the cornerstone. Creation will end. Eventually, Christ will come back. And he will show the entire world that he is the cornerstone. He is the most important piece to it all. And as Christians, we're not going to be put to shame because we know that. We know that to be true. It's going to be proven right when we see Christ returning. But Peter goes on in verse 7. He quotes from a couple different places in Scripture to continue this thought of, of Jesus being the cornerstone. Verse 7. He says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In verse 8, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter gives this idea in a couple different places of men rejecting Christ. This also was a comfort that Peter was giving the people. The, the people that Peter is writing to, they are facing rejection constantly. And, and the type of rejection that they're facing normally led to or was a part of persecution. They faced it day in, day out. They faced the rejection of men. And Peter comforts them in verse 4 and says, Remember Christ. Remember Christ, our Savior. He also was rejected by men. He also was, was turned away by men. But He is the cornerstone. He is the Christ. And again, he says here in verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ being the cornerstone. Christ being the most important piece of everything that we see. For the believer, that's good news. For the non-believer, that's very bad news. Because they have rejected the gospel. At some point, whenever they pass on, they will see that they missed the truth. They rejected Christ. They rejected who Jesus was. And this is very bad news for them. As we are speaking this morning, and our brother from the Philippines was speaking to us, we should have compassion for the lost because they are heading to this reality of being put to shame, realizing I was wrong, I rejected the truth of the gospel. I rejected Jesus. And they will see the reality of Jesus. In verse 8, In a stone of stumbling and rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
They stumble because of Christ, and they are leading to a time where they will be put to shame. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that all people, all people will bow at the name of Jesus and confess that He is Lord. Non-believer, believer alike, they will see Christ. And Peter tells the people that he is writing to, for the Christian, this is good news. For the non-Christian, this is bad news. This is bad news because at some point they will be put to shame. They will see the reality of who Jesus is as the cornerstone. He is everyone's cornerstone, but then Peter in verse 5, he gives us a little bit more detail. He's not just everyone's cornerstone, but more specifically, he's the church's. Verse 5, if you'll look there with me. He says, you, yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter introduces this idea, not only is Christ this living stone, but he says we are as well. We see that. You yourselves like living stones. So the first thing, again, he describes us and then he, he illustrates what we are. So we're going to start with the description of being living. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 55. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter tells us the reality for the Christian is that our life is bound up in the life of Christ. If we look at Jesus and we see He's overcome death, He's overcome sin, and He's alive forevermore, because of our faith in Him, we are told we have that same life. We don't have to worry about death. We don't have to worry about sin because it is a defeated foe. At the time that we come to know Christ, at the time that we're saved, death and sin is no longer something we should be too concerned about. It is something that's been defeated. And we have life. Just as the same that Christ has life and death has no hold on him, Christian, you have life and death has no hold on you. And this comforts us. This, this should encourage us. Peter is still speaking from a, a point of encouragement telling that this is good news. You're suffering, even, even you're dying because of your faith, but in reality, death is, has no hold on you. has no victory. Christ has the victory. You have life. Because of Christ. So he says that we are living, and he says living stones. Again, this idea of, of stones. He says being built up as a spiritual house. The understanding that Jesus is our cornerstone gives us this picture of a building being built from the cornerstone of Christ. I think to, to illustrate and put it a little bit more clearer, clearer for us, we see in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples, starting in verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. I think it's interesting to know that Peter is the one who confesses Christ in Matthew 16, and then in 1 Peter he's, he's writing again from an architecture standpoint. Maybe Peter would have been thinking about this scripture. So, so the discussion that's going on, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that I am? 
And, and they tell him, well, well some, some think you're, you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or, or even one of the prophets. And Jesus said, okay, forget about them. What do, you, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Simon speaks up. Simon Peter speaks up, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then verse 18, he says something very interesting. It's been misconstrued and, and twisted. And says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now understand, Jesus is not establishing the Pope here. This is how this, this verse has been twisted and, and misconstrued and misunderstood. When you, when you study the word and go a little bit deeper, we see that. He tells them, your name is Peter. That, that word is Petros. That means, that means pebble. That means, that means small stone. But then he goes on and he says, and on this rock, completely different word. This is the word Petra. See, Jesus is not referring to Peter being the rock. He's referring to the fact that he is the Messiah being the rock. Christ is the foundation of the church. Christ is the cornerstone of the church. Without Christ, we have no church. We have nothing. And Jesus goes on to say, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He says this is the foundation. This is the cornerstone. Christian, Christ is the cornerstone. That's the starting place. Southside, any church, when we, when we think of this church, when we think of any other church, if, if Jesus is not the cornerstone, if Jesus is not the foundation, if he is not the starting place, then we have missed the mark. We, we, we have built something that will not stand, that will not last. It doesn't matter what you build. It doesn't matter the programs. It doesn't matter how many people. It doesn't matter how much money. You have missed the point. Christ has to be and is the cornerstone. He is the starting place. And what's awesome about that, when we think about that and the reality of the church, is that we see Jesus as this cornerstone, this piece, and it defines everything else that we do. It defines the way this church looks. If we ask the question, how, what kind of ministry should we lead? We look to Jesus. We look to the cornerstone. We look to Christ and say, okay, how, how does Jesus define the kind, how did Jesus do ministry? How did he love people? How did he show compassion? He is the defining cornerstone, and he should define this church and every church. And this is the picture that Peter is giving us. Jesus is the cornerstone, and we as Christians are being built on that. It gives us this picture of unity. And what Peter is doing, he's shifting the people from thinking that, that, that the, the building is important. The temple is important. It's not. This, this building, it's, it's not what's important. What's important is the people. What's important is the people. Peter says it's no longer about a building, it's about a people. It's about a group of people who say Christ is our cornerstone and we are building from that point. He says it's not only a building, but it's also a people. And that's what he says. If you look there with me, uh, verse, if I can find it, uh, verse 5 again. It says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. Peter starts to introduce this idea of a New Testament believer being a part of a new priesthood. Now, of course, not offering animal sacrifices or anything like that. But he says instead you're offering spiritual sacrifices. Okay? The priesthood from an Old Testament point of view was one of service. And this is what Peter is telling us. He says the Christian, you, when you come to know Christ, you enter into service. You enter into a life of service. There are times that we see priests abusing their office in the Old Testament and then receiving consequences for their actions. I believe God takes the office of a priest very, very important. 
I believe he takes it very seriously. And again, Peter is not saying from an Old Testament point of view or from a Catholic point of view about a priest. He is saying that we, as Christians, we have entered into this, this idea of service, of lifelong service. We have a special calling as Christians. Although we are under grace, Peter is speaking to the particular service that we should be taking seriously and doing diligently. It's interesting for the Old Testament priest. It was something that was set aside. It was something that was important. It was something that was lifelong. Peter, in the same way, is saying to Christian, your life of service, your life of sacrificing does not end. Romans chapter 12, verse 1, paints this a little bit clearer. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It gives us the idea of living a holy life, of sacrificing our own wants, our own desires, our own selfish needs, and instead serving the church, serving our Savior, and serving the church that He has called us to. Each and every one of us in this church, a part of any church, has a special service that God has called them to. First and foremost, it's to live a holy life and it's to live a life devoted to Him. Ephesians chapter 2, I think, paints this picture a little clearer here than what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 through 21 says, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The starting place is Christ. He is the cornerstone, and Peter says that we, as his people, as his church, we grow together. We grow together into this holy temple devoted to him. So Christian, as I close here, as we think about these truths that Peter is, is introducing in these passages... Keep in mind the idea that Peter is saying when he's calling us a priest or calling us to be a part of a priesthood. It's one of service. It's one of serving our church. It's one of serving our Savior. If you would, let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you for this time. I thank you for uh, the scripture that we see here tonight, God, that that you, you are calling each and every one of us, God, to this, this place of service. And God, the starting place is, is Jesus. It's, it's the understanding that, that he's, he's the cornerstone. God, He defines what we do. He, he's where we start. And Father, I pray each and every one of us, every member of Southside would be devoted to Christ and devoted to this gospel, to serving, serving each other and serving you. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for everything it is and the people here. And God, we thank you most of all for Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. If you would, stand with us.